Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. In today's episode, Millen and I are joined by Charles DeVita. Charles is a 2012 graduate of the University of Connecticut and a 2019 graduate from the Yale School of Public Health. Professionally, Charles has gained experience in several healthcare settings, including holding a variety of roles at Cigna, internal consulting roles at Kaiser Permanente and Yale Haven Health, and currently, Charles serves as the Director of Strategy at IV Rehab Network. In today's episode, we discuss CMS's removal of the inpatient-only list in more detail, as well as go over the nuances of setting performance metrics in a rehab facility. We hope you enjoy our content, and if you feel inclined, please like and subscribe to the podcast. And without further ado, let's begin the episode. All right, so Charles, thank you for joining us. Um, we obviously appreciate all of our guests, but you were the first UConn alum we've had on the pod. So I'm a Cornell student now, but before anything else, I'm a UConn Husky. So I'm really excited to have you on for the day. It's awesome. Go Huskies. Yes, sir. Um, I'm going to be getting us kicked off with questions. So last December, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services made the commitment to fully remove the inpatient only list by 2024. And for our listeners who may be unfamiliar, the IPO list is a list of surgical procedures that CMS mandates be performed in an inpatient setting. And so to start, um, how do you expect the significant push towards the outpatient setting to affect patient care delivery going into the future? So it was, this was a good question. It was an interesting one to see. Um, when I was at the, the hospital at Yale, this was actually something we were working on pretty big um, before COVID hit. Uh, so even before the rule was, was changed and that um, procedures were going forward, I think really what we're seeing is that move towards more of a consumer-driven model in a lower-cost setting is really a big piece of the care right now. So you're seeing you know, a little bit of an increase in the payments for outpatient care um, from the CMS, and the, well, I think it was a 2.4% increase, if I remember correctly. But mostly what you're seeing uh, in the first year in 21 is musculoskeletal procedures being pulled. So you know, a lot of the you know, hips, joints, knees, those types of things, they're um, easily done in the ambulatory setting moving out of the hospital where it's going to be higher cost for, um, for basically everybody involved. So, you know, I think what we're seeing from our side, particularly um, when we're looking at the, the broader landscape, is that that trend is going to continue. Hospitals are going to have to adjust and they're going to have to figure out how they're going to be placing more outpatient centers in their systems, because really the, the logic of keeping some of these less invasive procedures in the hospital just continues to be you know, less and less significant as it goes forward. And that's what you were seeing with reflected in this rule. That's an interesting point on outpatient care, displacing what was traditionally the bread and butter of a hospital, which is inpatient care services. You had touched on consumer-centric care delivery models, which brings me into my next question. Ivy Rehab Network seems to be extremely intentional about providing personalized care to patients. As the director of strategy, can you talk about how consumerism and patient experience influence the strategic decisions that you make? Yeah, so I'll start more broadly just talking about consumerism within healthcare generally, because <clears throat> a lot of the work that I've done in most of my settings has been focused on patient experience and how do we reach patients where they are. And I think that's been a growing trend, and we've been kind of seeing this in medicine more recently, especially as we've had more app-enabled devices, more connection points, more reviews, more transparency into the systems that you've got a lot of people that are expecting that they're going to be delivering care in a way that meets their needs, exactly what they want. 
for my position in strategy, what I look for is how are we trying to find new ways to engage patients in that way? I think that's, that's really the broader trend within care right now generally is saying, what is it the patients are actually needing? And they're going to be shopping. You know, that, that's a big change from what we've seen historically is that we are now entering a level where patients have more information to see what's going on. Um, and to be able to make those decisions for themselves where they're getting their care. So whether that's you know, from a specific doctor, specific clinic, um, that changes a lot. So for IV rehab, for us, what we do in a clinical setting, um, that's a little bit challenging because really the switching costs within physical therapy are not very high. I mean, you, know, you go to one physical therapy clinic versus another, um, it's relatively similar care for the most part. But what we care about is that patient experience. So we're tailoring our, our care plans. We're working very specifically on building out unique models for individual patients. And really what we care about is the experience of the patients coming in the door. Um, because when you have that ability to do the research and, and switch relatively easily, which is happening more and more, especially as we're moving towards that outpatient setting, being very deliberate about caring for the patients and making that more personal impact is making a big difference. And patients are showing that with their wallets, that they're making those decisions financially. And that's really driving a lot of the care settings. Got it. I did want to follow up on one thing you mentioned. You mentioned that IV Rehab Network is really focused on patient engagement. Can you kind of just touch on briefly at a high level what goes into a successful patient engagement strategy and what are kind of some of the table stakes criteria that you need to have? Yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of understanding who your patient is. So within the physical therapy landscape, we see a very broad range of patients. I mean, it's everything from kids, you know, high school athletes and younger to, to torn ACLs and sprained ankles and those types of things, all the way through geriatric care, through um, patients with neurodegenerative diseases, looking for neuro rehab. We see a very broad gamut. So a lot of what we're talking about is really figuring out who the patient is and what they need from their care. Somebody like me, um, I might go in a couple times a year just for a tweak. You know, I need just a, a regular, you know, tune up and some stretching and, you know, little assessments. Whereas somebody like my, my mom who had rotator cuff surgery needs much more robust care and a more personalized plan. So when we're engaging with patients, that's what we're looking for is really understanding what is it that you need in your care plan and how can we work with you to make that, you know, more productive. We generally know how long a visit should be, how long a, a patient's episode of care should look, depending on what they're uh, seeing and then what they're presenting for their injuries. But what we want to do is work to make sure that it's going to work best for you. So whether that's coming in three times a week, um, full on every time coming into the clinic or now we're looking a lot more at virtual care and making those types of engagements and saying, look, you know, you need to come in once or twice a week for physical therapy uh, in person with manual treatment. But we can also do some stretching. We can do some things virtually, too, and engage you in a different level. So we're starting to see more and more of that happening within the physical therapy space in particular, where there's a much broader way of engaging the patients as opposed to just directly in the clinic every time. Thanks for that explanation, Charles. I personally wasn't aware how much of a role patient engagement plays in developing tailored care plans. Yeah, absolutely. And what we're seeing now too, and one of the things we're working on a lot is physical therapy generally is a, is a relatively underutilized specialty. What we're trying to do is start getting into um, new levels of conversation with primary care, with women's health, with pediatrics, um, with new specialties that we can engage with and talk about just general wellness. So, you know, the idea of you go in once a year for your wellness um, visit with your primary care doc, let's talk to them about having a physical wellness in the exam as well. Talk about your flexibility, your range of motion, see how you're doing generally, you know, that hip pain that you've been seeing. Maybe that's not normal. Maybe there's something we can do to work on those things. So looking at engaging more directly than just when a lot of people think of physical therapy, they purely think of orthopedics. They think of, you know, I, or an ACL, or I had shoulder surgery, and that's why I need physical therapy. But there's a much broader use case to be made. And I think talking to that level of personalization, engaging people where they are, having that knowledge share is really one way we can make a bigger impact. And, and there's a lot of 
preventative medicine involved in that and really trying to avoid some of the uh, medications and surgical procedures that go along with untreated illnesses and some conditions that could very well be managed prior to that. Charles, I want to pick up really quickly on one point that you mentioned earlier in this conversation, which was regarding patients shopping around uh, for, you know, in, in hospitals to sort of save on costs. As you know, this year has been sort of an interesting year between CMS and the American Hospital Association, where they've kind of been going back and forth on, on the price transparency rule, where, you know, ideally CMS, the goal was that with hospitals now publishing their prices online, you know, that would sort of encourage consumers and patients to sort of shop around and, and opt for the cheaper options. But we're not exactly seeing all the hospitals doing this. So how do you sort of navigate that? I mean, what is this going to look like in the next two years? So the problem with the price transparency, and this is going back to my days working from the payer side, is that you we all know in healthcare, you never pay what your bill is. Nobody pays what their charges are. So that rule coming out and showing what the charge books look like was interesting, I think, for people, but it really didn't reflect the reality of how the money flows through the health system in general. And so you know, when we're seeing that conversation take place and you're talking about consumerism, it was kind of a false level of information for people to look and see what the charge book said, because the reality is that's never what anybody's going to collect ever. You know, if you're collecting 60 or 70 cents on the dollar, that's a great day. Um, that's never what it looks like. So having that level of information out there in the world was, I think, informative because it gave people you know, an interesting sense of what the book looked like, but it didn't really change the consumerism mindset because you're not still making, it's the same way when you go on Amazon and you're buying something that says, oh, it's you know 70% off. They were never charging you that in the first place. It was never going to be that price. So you can shop around for these crazy deals, but they never really existed in reality. So when it comes to actual consumerism within healthcare, I think until we have much closer alignment between really build charges and actual payments and the prices that are actually being set, it's kind of hard to say that that's really going to make a large impact just because of the way that the billing actually takes place. And as long as the negotiated world exists with we do with payers right now, I don't see that particularly changing anybody's real behavior because it's just not based on what you're actually going to be seeing from a wallet standpoint. Yeah, and I guess just to sort of add on to that, you know, when the when you know, we did see these hospitals publishing these prices, you know, I just sort of casually took a look at what these books look like. And it was so complicated, even for myself, you know, as a, an aspiring administrator, sort of learning the terminology, it took me a lot of time to really understand what exactly I was looking at, how these prices are calculated, and ultimately what difference is this going to make when I'm shopping around for services. So it was really interesting to see that. And I guess to sort of shift gears a little bit more and focus on pairs, because I know you worked for Cigna for about five years. Having never worked for a payer myself, I'm a little curious. Can you pull back the curtains and talk more about this dynamic relationship between payers and providers? What does that look like? And, and what were your key observations while you were working at Cigna? So it's interesting. You know, one of the reasons I went back and, and got my MPH was that I saw that there was a pretty large gap between the business side of the healthcare world and the uh, provider side. Um, really just talking past one another in terms of the language that they were using. And, and one of the jobs I had at Cigna before I left was actually working on provider experience and, and talking to docs and saying, what can Cigna do better? You know, I, I joke around and say that my job was pretty much uh, finding out how to doctors to hate Cigna less. Like that was my job. Um, and so, you know, there's always been this tension between the payer world and the provider world now being on the other side of it, seeing what that looks like. You know, the, the conversations can be interesting. You know, one of the things I we were looking at um, at one time was how do you work with the payers 
to create a better delivery of care model and steer patients in the right direction. So talking about consumerism, the easiest way to move patients is through their dollars. You know, and the bundled care world and kind of managed care payments is one direction that I think really can help that, where you can say, look, we're gonna cover your entire suite of care here. This is what it's gonna look like. And then going to the, uh, to the uh, provider side and talking to them and saying, okay, look, we're gonna give you a bonus. You treat these patients well, you do this care great. We're willing to give you some extra cash to manage those patients well. So when you have that engagement, there's kind of a win-win situation that can be generated. And it's it gets a little bit complicated because there's still a lot of scars from the early HMO days of what the managed care world looked like, some of the real abuses that happened when they were really skimming payments and taking away from the reimbursement side. So you get a lot of trepidation when it comes to those conversations. But when you actually sit down and have it in a way that I think engages on both sides to say, look, we can do a win-win. We are, you know, there's a way where your underwriting model works, where you're giving a little bit of extra money because you know that we're going to provide you quality care and we're going to give you good outcomes. So one of the jobs that I have within my role is working with our director of outcomes at, at Ivy to basically build up a model that says, look, we can provide better return on investment for patients if they are given this number of visits after a, you know, a hip replacement. We know that we can reduce readmissions. We know that we can reduce falls if we get patients in the door and receiving their care. So going to the provider, um, excuse me, to the payers and saying that and saying, look, we're going to save you guys money because they're not going to have these adverse events happening because we know that we can treat them in a low cost setting. That's a meaningful conversation. The payers will jump at that. So there's a little bit of kind of massaging on both sides of the conversation to kind of get it to a point where everybody feels like they're getting something valuable out of it. But it's absolutely a way that can be done. And I think we're starting to see kind of the, the circle come back around now where that's becoming more and more accepted. Providers are starting to take a little bit more risk on their own. Um, the payers are saying, look, we'll give you some extra cash here as long as you guys provide us with good results. Got it. And I guess kind of going back to what you mentioned briefly when you were working uh, essentially as a lead for these providers and sort of translating their their needs uh, to business initiatives. You know, you mentioned one of the projects that you sort of worked on was developing metrics for quali you know, qualitatively and quantitatively. What exactly did this look like? I mean, what, what, what does this process involve? So it's interesting within physical therapy, it's not a particularly um, robust data world at this point. I will say as far as specialties go, it's really just starting to get up and running um, from the data side compared to some of the other uh, specialties out there in healthcare. So part of the conversation was really, what do payers want to see? You know, what is the information that we want to be putting out there that's going to be valuable uh, in the world? And how do we collect that data and measure it? Because the system of measurements that physical therapy uses is a little bit different than um, some of the metrics that I would see previously when I was in the hospital setting. So you know, it's creating a little bit of a different world where you're saying we've got to figure out how do we measure and report these things in a way that's gonna provide useful information for people that aren't familiar with the industry in terms of how these are measured. Um, so really when we're coming and looking at quality outcomes, we're saying we wanna be able to make somebody better. You wanna show improvement for their scores. So if you had, you know, you were able to, to flex your knee to a 20 degree angle, we wanna get it down to you know, 30 degrees. We wanna have a little bit of extra flex in there. So that's something we can report on. You know, the length of stay, how long do you need to be coming in for visits? How long does that treatment look like? We do track readmissions. We track, you know, whether people are coming back in for the same thing over and over. Those are things that we can report back out on. Um, and we're able to engage with the payers and they find that information to be useful. But what we have found is that we're still trying to really tie that financially back in a way that's meaningful. So what is the uh, translation between somebody coming in for 12 visits versus 15 visits and whether or not they're going to end up having to have another surgery later down the road? 
Um, does that make a difference? What is the, the kind of magic numbers in between there? That's where we start spending a lot of time digging into the data um, you know, as we are starting to evaluate those processes. So there's a lot there. It's still a lot to be, I would say, uncovered in this uh, specialty in particular as we're starting to figure out what makes the most sense for how we measure these things. But the conversations we're going forward with the payers has been, we are very receptive. We would like to hear what you guys have to say. We've had very good conversations with our payer partners. They're willing to, to hear us out as we're putting these things out there into the world. Um, but we're starting to build out that data set in a way that's really starting to make a, a fuller picture come together. Yeah, and just to sort of follow up on that, you know, how exactly do you standardize the case complexity? Because like you mentioned, you know, reimbursements for physical therapy, this is something that's still kind of growing and you're figuring out a way to really accurately predict the reimbursements. Um, and you have patients coming in with different levels of complexity. So how exactly, you know, from a payer perspective, how would you standardize that to say like, look, regardless of, you know, patient A and patient B having different severities of illness and risk or mortality, this is how we're going to standardize these payments. It's a big challenge. Um, you know, there's a, within therapy, we have pretty much uh, a handful of codes that we're pretty consistent with. You know, there's certain things that we do that are specialized, that are more unique, but there's a handful that are pretty general that we're going forward on. So when it comes to reimbursement, we generally have a, uh, an idea. We look at it with our basically within our clinic level. So we look at a clinic and saying, all right, what's your average reimbursement that you're getting in from all the different pairs? Because we have different negotiated rates depending on where we are. Um, really, the size, uh, you know, how many clinics that we have in the state makes a big difference for our Blue Cross payments versus a more generalized plan that we may have with a Cigna or an Aetna in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, wherever it may be. So part of what our, we do is we do have, you know, balance out our case links. We look at who's coming in the door and who do we have within that environment, it is hard to balance the risk profiles. I mean, we look and we see, you know, there are certain areas where we know that we can't go into because we can't be profitable. Um, it's one of the things that we're actually looking at putting a research paper together on right now is the lack of physical therapy access in Medicaid populations. Um, some areas there we know where we're going to be seeing 60 or 70% Medicaid we don't know if we can actually be viable to operate in those kind of spots. We can't really make a bottom line because the reimbursement doesn't make sense. So that's a challenge. It really is because we want to be able to deliver care in places where we know people need it. But at the same time, we still have to keep the lights on. And that, that is a challenge to balance those things out because physical therapy is a low reimbursement you know, business. We average somewhere in the $9,500 per visit range. It's not a lot of money. Um, you know, we, there's not much that you can do to really change where that stands. So having a, a case mix that makes sense is um is a challenge because we want to be able to serve everybody. We want to be able to make, you know, really engage with patients and make them better. And so we do look at the populations, we look at the geographies and we see where it makes the most sense for us to be having our clinics and open up. But at the same time, you know, we are looking at ways we can expand out and reach more people. And that's why we've been looking into telehealth is why we've been looking into new other areas where we can expand our reach beyond the physical clinics to be able to engage with patients that are in need. Got it. Yeah, I'd be really interested to sort of see, you know, how CMS approaches in the next couple of years, because we're seeing that they're increasing payments for, with certain things like uh, home health and telehealth. So really curious to see what physical therapy is going to look like in the coming years. Now, I want to shift your focus a little bit more towards uh, something that you did at Kaiser Permanente and Yale New Haven, where you worked as an internal consultant. And I'm kind of seeing more and more of that now where people are shifting towards those types of roles within these large health systems. Can you shed more light on this shift and how exactly is it beneficial to these organizations? Yeah, I, so it's interesting. I went back for my uh, degree, uh, my MPH, which was focused in healthcare management. And when I got into the program and was ready to go in, 
the one thing I said I really didn't want to do was go work for a hospital. And then I immediately went and worked for a hospital. Um, so it was you know, really uh, not, not the uh, direction I had intended to go to, but I found this internal consulting position and that's where I landed. And it was really interesting because what you found is that there were people that had looked into the regular consulting world, looked into some of the um, you know, major healthcare consulting firms and landed in the hospital setting because what I found in particular was I was able to do that work, but I was in the same geography and being able to really know and understand the systems. And there's something about the, you know, the consulting mindset, the way that some you know, strategy focused minds think um, is really useful in the health setting. You know, a lot of these hospitals, Yale and Kaiser both, um, they're old legacy health systems. They've been around forever and they have a very specific way of doing things and it's worked very well. But it's changing. Yeah, you know, we are seeing a shift in the landscape that is away from we talked about earlier, away from the inpatient setting, away from these you know large hospital-focused systems, and that's one thing that I think has really become of note for these systems is they realize the way that they did business in the past is not necessarily the way that's going to work all over their system going forward. Now they're not going to change the bulk of their business. I mean, Yale, in particular, was you know, five uh, hospitals within Connecticut. Kaiser, you know, dozens of hospitals throughout the state of California, they're still going to be major hospital-focused systems. But what they're finding is that they are looking for new ways to think and new ways to engage. And by having their internal consultants that are embedded and know how to do that work a little bit differently, they're getting a lot of value from it. Because a lot of these groups were spending money on outside consultants. They were spending money in a lot of different areas. And it's expensive. It's, it's easier to have those things in-house. It's cheaper to have those resources in-house with people that are always familiar with what you're doing. So I really enjoyed my time there. I thought it was really great to be able to work in the hospital setting in that kind of a system, but have that longitudinal um, effect and impact across a number of different areas within the health system. Um, for me, I have a lot of job ADD. I like doing a thousand different things all at once. So being in that sort of a setting within the hospital world was really cool for me in a really great environment. Yeah, that's really interesting to mention, you know, to sort of see, you know, you mentioned this transformation that we're seeing now with hospitals, they're still going to retain their inpatient functions, but now we're starting to see them acquiring more of these smaller practices and shifting towards that outpatient function. And, you know, you're doing a little bit of practice management yourself. So I'm actually curious to see, you know, what are some of the biggest differences that you see working from, you know, working for a pair like Cigna to health systems like Kaiser and Yale, and then now sort of being in a smaller practice like Ivy, and and what what does that what does that look like? What are some of the biggest challenges that you're seeing with practice management? It's I mean it's really across the board very different. Um, the, the settings I've been in have been very uh, very different um, views and lenses to the healthcare system. So at Cigna, when we were looking at how do we engage with uh, provider groups and how do we work on um, some of those arrangements, I was particularly working. Uh, my last job there was looking at sort of ACO models and some of the narrow networks um, in particular. And that was very different. You know, that was very focused on uh, finding the right combination of providers in a, a specific area that's going to deliver care and provide you a good coverage for the patients that you have within that setting. And so yeah, that was a very different lens to look at. How are we draw those maps? How, who do we include in those networks? How does that get brought in? Um, at the Yale side in the practice management, it was really interesting to see because Yale has um, a couple of different divisions within the Yale umbrella. So it's the, the Yale hospital system um, is the overarching brand, but then they have basically the hospital side, the primary care side, and then the medical school and the um, kind of teaching hospital side. Um, so the outpatient world was run by really a, a separate group within that division, which did have kind of their own 
really say over how they ran their outpatient clinics and what that looked like. So it was a little bit different because the hospitals were really focused on the inpatient setting, their broader group, and it was a separate division. And it was interesting to see because those groups really did work independently of one another. And now we are seeing a much more closely linked connection between those groups. You know, those things are starting to become more closely aligned than, than they would previously would have. Um, and now working in the real outpatient setting purely within uh, the rehab setting, um, very different world. You know, I've really, again, the difference between being in a you know, major payer, a national payer, um, you know, a major health system, and then a private equity backed smaller um, you know, still substantial with 280 clinics or so uh, group, um, very different ways of, of running businesses. You know, for this model, it is a lot of regional control. So we have a lot of regional directors that are focused on managing their clinics within their territories and the kind of general operation. Um, but you have slightly different goals. You know, it's different to run an outpatient setting when you've got a $5 billion system behind you um, versus, you know, running a, a really more narrow and focused PNL for an individual clinic that does have its own accountability. So very different settings, very different environments when you've got uh, the larger nonprofit, you know, um, academic brand behind you versus kind of more of a um, operationally focused and localized model when you have a lot of these outpatient clinics. Got it. So it seems like to summarize, you know, the difference between these large health systems and the smaller practice management, which I wouldn't even say it's really small, you've got pretty extensive reach everywhere, is that, you know, with these large health systems, it's, you know, the acquisition of these smaller practice managements, it's, it's very siloed and isolated, and there's not a whole lot of integration going on. But then with practice managements like Ivy Rehab, there's essentially a lot of, you know, regional control over these markets, and you're able to actually meet patients where they are. Yep, I think that, that's a good way of summing it up. Um, you know, when you've got a large brand that, that's kind of able to incorporate, it's really easy to, to bring those groups in and they've got a large backing behind them. Um, when you've got a, a more of a, a spread out network like we do in a different setting, um, it, it is a little bit more localized and you know, kind of regionally focused as you're going forward the development. But it's very interesting to see the difference between those two as you're going in. Charles, I want to follow back up on one of something you mentioned in one of Millen's earlier questions. Um, you obviously have a lot of experience as a strategist in different healthcare delivery settings. Can you talk a little bit about how you take a strategy from conception to actual implementation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's so for, for me, um, I'm a little bit different than I would say a lot of the consultants and other folks that you'll meet that are usually a lot more type A. Um, I am definitely a type B uh, person. So uh, I'm a little bit more relaxed with my strategies and I'm a little bit more broad focus um, when I go in my delivery. So my biggest thing is I like to ask a lot of questions. Mostly what I do when I have trying to identify where we need to be working is talking to the ground level. You know, what is the problem that you guys are having? And really, it's less of a, I've identified a problem, here's my solution. Because um, most of the time, I don't know, I, especially at Ivy, I don't know physical therapy. I was completely new to this industry. It was a new spot for me. So me trying to toss out plans and fix things doesn't usually work just by me coming up with a solution. A lot of it is spending time trying to understand what the, the environment looks like and how these things are playing out. But what I found is really interesting too, is that when you have a group like Ivy Rehab, which is built by a lot of physical therapists, uh, most of our organization is all from therapy. Um, 
it helps to have a different outside lens. So taking uh, some real project management skills. So I have some experience with Six Sigma. I've gone through the PMP training. Um, so I do have some more structured project management um, uh, background as well as change management. And really for me, change management is my bigger focus. So part of what I'm doing when I'm having those listening exercises and trying to diagnose my problems is spending the time to actually understand how are we gonna make these changes? The vast majority of plans and strategies fail when it comes to the change management piece. You can have a brilliantly laid out project plan, nicely organized into you know, 200 lines on an Excel sheet of your whole step-by-step uh, -step process. But if you don't get the buy-in, if you don't get the people behind you to actually make those changes, most things will fail. And in my experience so far, that's where I've seen most initiatives um, either falter or really struggle with rollout is on the, the understanding and implementation piece. And that's where I spend a lot of my time is people coming to me with, hey, I have an idea. I'm not sure how to get it in play. I'll work with them on finalizing what that plan should look like, but more of the time we spend is how do we actually get it implemented and actually spending the time to walk through those steps of getting the buy-in and getting the implementation in line. Point very well taken on the implementation piece. I actually got an advice from a mentor who said the best systems and the best strategies are the ones that are the easiest to follow. So I think sometimes to your point, being very nuanced kind of that gets lost in translation and as a result, the strategy might not succeed. Um, Charles, our last question for the day, I just want to focus a little bit on your transition to Ivy Rehab Network. So as you know, Ivy Rehab Network was founded in 2003 and has a pretty novel approach to physical therapy and occupational therapy. Can you talk about what prompted you to leave an established institution like Yale New Haven Health and then transition to a private equity-backed company that provides a little bit more nuanced or niche um, services to patients? Yeah, so this was, you know, I was thinking about this question when I uh, saw it before. And um, for me, the switch was um, kind of right place, right time. So the job at Yale worked out really well for me. Um, I had recently graduated. My wife is a management consultant, so she was traveling a lot. And I really wanted to work in an environment where I had the opportunity to do that consulting type of work and at a place like Yale, get a wonderful experience with a great institution. Um, once I kind of got my feet underneath me and felt that I knew what I was doing there and really enjoyed it, um, COVID hit <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that really threw a wrench in pretty much everything. And I went from building, you know, large scale strategies for the health system to immediately pivoting to how do we build out a telehealth network for the health system? How do we start engaging patients outside? How do we prepare for the pandemic? Um, and it put everything really into perspective and kind of made things a little bit crazy for a bit. Um, I found Ivy actually um, uh, through happenstance. I was outreached by one of the recruiters there and ended up talking to them. And I was kind of right place, right time, like I said, because I was looking to move back to Philadelphia and I wanted to get closer to my family, which is where I'm originally from. But the idea to move to a private equity backed environment was definitely one that gave me some pause because it's not a spot that I had been in. I come from very large institutions and this would be a very different challenge. But that's really what was exciting for me. Um, like I said, I'm a type B person. Uh, I like kind of working without a net. And I will say, um, you know, hospitals are wonderful places to, to work and build a career, um, but they are large bureaucratic organizations. You know, they, there's a lot of red tape and that's part of why they hire consultants in the first place is because they, they've spent a lot of time building that and they need people to work through that. Um, so for me, moving to a private equity backed environment in a different spot, um, it was a little bit of the, the risk uh, assessment to say, this is something I want to try. So even in the middle of the pandemic, picking it up and moving, you know, talking to my wife a little bit about what that would look like, it was a shift to uh, betting on myself a little bit more um, and taking over to this role to say, look, I, I'm going to try to build something here. And it was an opportunity to, to do that. 
I think that's really great to hear, especially for a lot of our listeners who have an MPH or MHA background. As you know, obviously, Charles, the healthcare landscape from patient care delivery and beyond is so broad and expansive. So being able and willing to take a risk with your career and seeing it pay off is something that's reassuring for Millen and I to hear and then for also all of our listeners. And I just wanted to add one thing, too. I think, you know, there's a um, feeling out there sometimes about private equity back groups that it's purely about the money and that you're going in to just kind of make cash. And um, that there's a reality that, yes, that that is there are investors. There are people that are, you know, that have invested in the organization, but they invest because they have a reason to do so. Part of why I was driven to Ivy is it is a mission driven organization. You know, we deliver phenomenally good patient care, and that is really the heart of what we do. A lot of the strategy work that I do right now is building out new clinical programs. It's how do we engage more people? We built a program specifically for healthy lungs to help people recover from COVID, the people that are having the long haul problems. We treat a lot of those patients. We treat a lot of patients that are um, you know, have balance issues, that are fall risks. My grandmother fell, broke her hip, and was um, basically, that was the kind of end, uh, start of the end for her was um, losing balance and having that type of an injury. We can make a good impact. And I think people sometimes hear private equity and they automatically get turned off by that and feel that they can only make an impact in you know, the nonprofit hospital setting, but there are lots of ways to do that. There are lots of ways to make a meaningful impact. And I think it's sometimes finding the right ones because there are some groups that are maybe less than reputable that do find themselves in a little bit of a um, financially driven environment. But um, I'm happy to say that I found a group that really does care about where they're delivering their care and their patients as well. That's awesome to hear. Everything has been working out so well for you, Charles. And again, we really appreciate you providing your perspective. It's coming from a unique angle in the care delivery spectrum. And then, like I mentioned at the beginning of this pod, always good to have another Husky on. So we really appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys.